On December 30, 1916, in St. Petersburg, a man lay dead on the floor in the home of a right-wing politician. As he lay there dying, his murderers stood over him confused and alarmed. They had set out and planned in advance that that day would be this man's last on earth. What they hadn't planned on, however, was the manner in which his death would occur. You see, two years previous to this event, they thought the man had already been killed. He was seriously wounded in a stabbing near his home and wasn't expected to survive the night. It was in the two years after that this man's power in Russia grew even further. When the man arrived to the home where he would meet his friend, he arrived without concern. He arrived for a casual meeting with colleagues and friends. He was handed a drink which he gleefully accepted and drank it without effort. The drink was Madeira wine and it was poisoned. The man drank three glasses of it. To the amazement of those in the room aware of the plan, not only did the poison not kill him, but the wine didn't even get him tipsy. A few hours later, upon coming to the realisation that the plan had failed, the soon-to-be murderers hatched a quick plan to convince that man to go to the basement where he would be shot. They lured him down with talk of the basement being the location of better drinks. As he entered the room, the man was told to face the crucifix on the wall and say a prayer. A gun was placed against his chest and a trigger was pulled. The man collapsed to the floor and lay there bleeding out. To cover up what they had done, one of the murderers put on his coat and hat, drove to his house and walked in making it look to any neighbours that he'd returned home that evening. The plan had not worked perfectly, but their victim was dead and they had a reasonable cover story. They then returned to the room where they shot him in order to dispose of the body. They positioned themselves around him, ready to lift him. As they did, the man rose and attacked them. The murderers were overpowered by him and one of them ran up the stairs to save themselves. The man chased them up and out into the courtyard. As he ran, one of the other murderers ran to a window, took a steady aim and pulled the trigger. The man collapsed into a snowbank. The murderers ran to where he now lay and shot him in the forehead. They then refused to take their eyes off him as they decided what to do next. Afraid he could return from the dead again, they tied his hands and legs. They gagged his mouth and blindfolded him. 
They then wrapped the man in a sheet and tied ropes around that too. When they were confident that if he did wake again he would be less of a threat to them, they drove to a nearby bridge and threw the man into the river. This man was once the most powerful man in Russia. He was seen as a Christ-like holy man, who was a big influence in the decisions made by the last emperor of Russia. The man's name was Grigory Rasputin, the man who couldn't be killed. It's a relatively famous story, but Rasputin has no Irish family links, at least none that I am aware of. Instead, we go to the Bronx, New York, where a man who did not enjoy the same fame as Rasputin lived. This man was from Donegal. This is his story. In County Donegal, in 1873, a man was born. His name was Michael Malloy. Michael grew up in Donegal at a time when, although its beauty was unlimited, the opportunities in it for a young man were very limited. Michael saved as much money as he could, and when he was about 20 years old, he purchased a ticket to New York. He left behind him a life of certain difficulty and hardships in the hope of opportunity. When he arrived in New York, he settled in the Bronx area. Initially, Michael began working for the New York City Fire Department. Here, he witnessed some horrific injuries, deaths and trauma to the people he was trying to help. Like all good firemen, he did not shy away from any challenge on the job, as he understood his efforts were the difference between life continuing and life ending. After some time in the role, however, the things that Michael saw began to weigh heavy on him. There is, after all, only so much suffering one can witness and manage before it begins to consume you. The day-to-day -day job was also becoming harder as Michael began to gain a great dependency on alcohol to help him get through the days and sleep at night. In order to try and save himself, he decided to leave the fire department. Through the Irish community there, he managed to get a job working on industrial machines, moving from factory to factory, wherever the work was going. Whilst doing this, his superiors began to notice his work rate and value, and he was eventually promoted to stationary engineer in one of these factories. Things were really looking up for Michael, and his move from Donegal looked more than worthwhile. This was until 1929 when the Wall Street crash happened and the Great Depression started. Within a few hours of the crash, Michael found himself with millions of others jobless, homeless and helpless. The drinking started again. Scale Fadiger 
From the time Michael landed in America and to this point of our story, alcohol was outlawed. From 1920 to 1933, prohibition was chosen to ban the production, importation, transportation and sale of alcoholic beverages. Within five years of the laws being passed, the majority of people understood it wasn't working. Bootleggers began brewing their own alcohol. These brewers were not experienced or trained in how to make alcohol. They brewed whatever they could with whatever they could. Alcohol percentages and units couldn't be managed and the other liquid ingredients couldn't be regulated. For the upper classes, this wasn't too much of an issue. If you knew somebody who knew somebody, you could get some nice wines from Spain or some whiskies from a distillery. For the working class, however, you got your alcohol from whoever had it. Your only variety of choice was, do you want it or not? Speakeasies popped up across America to sell illegal drinks. The lack of regulation created carnage for those who chose to consume alcohol after a day's work. Michael now struggled with being homeless and with his need to meet the dependency of his addiction. He did manage to get some very occasional work around the docks labouring, which helped to finance his addiction. His speakeasy of choice was the Mermaid in the Bronx. Those in the Mermaid didn't appear to be concerned with your background or your status. They had alcohol and if you had money you could have it. They even let Michael do some jobs for them in exchange for some drinks from time to time. Being an illegal business however, the intentions of the owners were not always the cleanest. The bar was owned by an Italian man called Tony Marino. Tony was 27 years old and ran his bar in the back of an abandoned hardware store. There wasn't much to be said about the bar itself. It was just a single room with one sofa, four tables and a 12 foot long plywood bar. Behind the bar were bottles of undistinguished alcohols. Tony himself was often too busy with what we will refer to as other activities to work the bar and instead a 28 year old Irishman, Joseph Murphy, ran the bar for him. Joseph, like Michael, also had a great dependency on alcohol and it was this which led him to working in the bar. He too had become homeless and in exchange for his work, Tony allowed him to sample some of the alcohol and sleep behind the bar. One day, Tony asked Joseph for a quiet word. He had heard that under current laws, anyone could take out a life insurance policy on anyone they wanted. 
Confused, Joseph nodded along. Tony then explained that if they took out a policy on a customer, gave them alcohol poisoning through their high-strength drink, the customer would die and they would collect the cheque. Desperate for money, Joseph agreed to the plan and Tony enlisted two more men to join them. Francis Pasqua and Daniel Kreisberg. In 1932, the group of four soon-to-be murderers took notice of a young homeless woman called Mabel Carlson, who regularly drunk in the bar. They convinced her to sign the insurance forms while she was drunk in the bar. A few weeks passed, and on St. Patrick's Day, 1932, they got Mabel drunker than drunken bee. When she passed out, they took her to an upstairs bedroom, took off all her clothes, covered her in ice-cold water, and put her in a bed next to a wide-open window. Mabel died that night. Tony received his insurance payout for her death. $2,000. The plan had worked and they covered it up relatively well. Delighted with how things had gone, the gang decided the following year to do it all again. As Michael drank in the bar, Tony identified him as their next victim. He instructed Joseph to become friendly with this fellow Irishman and Joseph did what he was told, occasionally ignoring Michael's tab. Michael must have thought he had hit the friendship jackpot here to continue to feed his addiction. Tony, on the other hand, must have felt the need to hurry up with his plan before Michael drank himself to death. Some time went on and while he was drunk, Michael was approached by Tony and his gang and they convinced him to sign their insurance forms, not making him aware of who the beneficiaries were. So not to look suspicious, they let some time pass before enacting the next part of their plan. As with Mabel, when the time came, the men surrounded Michael, began drinking with him and got him into a right jolly state. Over the next few hours, Michael drank and drank and drank. Tony and the others were amazed with just how much he could put away. He was drinking their strongest stuff. Becoming frustrated, at one point one of the gang members grabbed Michael by the chin, pushed his head back and placed the neck of a bottle into his throat. Michael grabbed it off him and chugged it down. He then fell onto the floor. Quick to act, the gang grabbed him by his ankles and dragged him out into the snow and left him to die. Michael lay under the stairs that night, the world spinning in his head and a victim of circumstance. Faced upright into the night sky, he eventually passed out and lay motionless in the snow. The following morning, Joseph went outside the bar and saw that Michael was gone. 
This was a sign of success, as the major cities had a habit of removing the dead homeless from the streets before anybody could see them, to ensure their images were not tarnished. Later that evening, Tony and the others entered the bar to a joyous Joseph, who told them their plan had worked and they should get their payout soon. As they celebrated, Michael strolled into the bar, ordered a drink and sat with the men he thought were his friends. Frustrated, Tony ordered more drinks and they tried their plan again. As the night grew old, again the gang became annoyed with Michael's ability to continue to drink without effect. It was at this point that Tony decided he wasn't waiting around again for Michael to pass out. He was already fairly hungover from the night before. He began to place antifreeze into Michael's drinks in an effort to poison him. Michael began to get sick and when he started to pass out from the poison, the gang took him outside and left him in the snow. The following morning, Joseph went out to check if he was still there and Michael was gone. Sure, this time it had worked. Later that evening, he told Tony and the others in the bar that Michael was gone and they were all certain he couldn't survive the poison. As they discussed what each would do with their share of the payout, in walked Michael again. Again frustrated, Tony and the others discussed the idea of just shooting him, but found that their policy wouldn't cover an obvious murder, and their plan of making it look like a self-inflicted accident was still the best way of getting their payout. That night, the drinking started again, but Tony wasn't waiting around. From the start of the evening, he began placing any poison he could find into Michael's drinks. He started first with turpentine, then a mix of horse liniment and rat poison. Michael passed out very early in the night, but as this was a common sight in Tony's bar, it was too early to leave him outside without looking suspicious and without witnesses. As they waited for the bar to empty, Michael woke up and reached for another drink. Tony then began just handing Michael shots of pure methanol. Unknowingly to Tony and his gang, these different poisons were all forming a potion in Michael's stomach, which negated the poisonous effects of each when mixed with alcohol. Michael again passed out, they covered him in cold water and they left him out in the snow. The following morning, with Michael's body gone again, Joseph didn't assume anything. The gang met in the bar again and waited for any sight or word of Michael. They spent the evening staring at the door waiting for him. Some days passed and nobody had heard of or seen Michael. Tony began to become relieved that his plan had worked and began to move the cogs to get his payment. After he registered Michael as missing, he went to the bar to celebrate with his fellow murderers. As they celebrated, in walked Michael. 
He explained to them that he had spent the last few nights getting violently sick and wasn't normally like him to be that hungover, he joked. Maybe it was because he was getting older. Tony decided that the drink wasn't working and instead turned to food. They got Michael drunk to dull his sense of taste and smell and fed him gone off and raw oysters dosed in methanol. They also gave him a sandwich of spoiled sardines with carpet nails inside it. Michael began to get sick but on this occasion he left himself. The gang again waited for any word of him but were much more confident that this attempt had worked. He showed up the following day. Again, they got him drunk, covered him in ice water, stripped him naked and buried him under the snow. A few days later, they spotted Michael walking through the Bronx unaffected by what they were putting him through. Furious, frustrated and confused, Tony's gang decided to take a more traditional route. As Michael drank in the bar, a taxi waited outside. As he went to leave, a signal was sent to the taxi and at 45 miles per hour, the taxi made clean contact with Michael, propelling him through the air. Michael lay on the road, bones broken and bleeding heavily. A group of onlookers went to see if he was okay, but he lay motionless. Soon the police and ambulance arrived and Michael was taken away. Three weeks passed and there was no sign or word of Michael. Tony filled out the paperwork again and filed for his policy payout. A few days passed and Tony received a letter in the post. The letter stated that the life insurance policy for Michael couldn't be paid out as Michael wasn't dead. He was in a hospital recovering from his injuries. When Michael left the hospital, Tony invited him to the bar to celebrate his recovery. This time, however, when Michael passed out, Tony had a very different plan for him. They took Michael to one of the bedrooms in the house and forced a hose down his throat. The other end of the hose was connected to a coal gas jet. The gas was then turned on. Michael began to turn yellow and then black. Within an hour, Michael was gone and all that was left of who he was was his earthly vessel. As soon as he was dead, the gang bound his hands and legs for fear he would come back, blindfolded him covered him in a sheet and tied ropes around that too. He was then placed into a shallow grave. The gang then went to a local doctor and forced him to sign a death certificate. This was quickly sent to the insurance company. As the weeks went on, the homeless Irish community began asking questions of the police if they knew where Michael was. They assumed he had been arrested and wanted to know where their friend was. Michael had been telling them of his nights with Tony 
and they told these stories to the police. They told them of all the places he woke up and how awful the drinks tasted. They told them Michael's story of the terrible food in Tony's bar. They told them Michael's story of the taxi which hit him as he left the bar. There was only one place for the police to start their investigation. When the investigating police officer discovered that an insurance claim had been placed by Tony, he arrested him and Tony gave up all the others. The gang of four were put on trial and sentenced to death by electric chair. The taxi driver was sentenced to life in prison. The doctor was fined $10,000. Today's music was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help to support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan is Anam Dom, Gurav Mahagat, Slananish. It's the big one. The Sky Half Price Sale is here. Choose from award-winning Sky TV and everything on Netflix. Or unmissable sports with every single live Premier League game on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports all half price. Take Sky Cinema and watch the biggest blockbusters. Or grab Sky Broadband Ultrafast for lightning fast speeds. Choose one that suits you. They're all half price for six months. Save big in the Sky Half Price Sale. Search Sky Half Price. Availability subject to location, TV and broadband products sold separately. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speed. Setup fees, min terms and further terms apply. Offer ends 2nd of September.